Good evening. Um, my name is Jason. I, um, I work here um, at the house. And um, uh, we have about, well, two weeks after this, I think. We have two more houses after this, two more Tuesday night worship services. And one of the things that's kind of um, catches like us off guard every single year is, um, is just letting you all know about summer plans stuff. So um, just so you know, we have staff that works full year round um, at the house. And over the summer, we still do a Tuesday night um, thing in June and July. So May is off. I'll say this the next couple weeks as well. But we do a cookout that's free for anybody who wants to come and we'll do a, a discussion over the course of the whole summer. Um, it's one of my favorite times of the year. Um, it's usually pretty awesome and there'll be some like random events service projects over the summer as well but also summer is a, a huge time for many of you there's a lot of transition a lot of big decisions um, and if you'd like um, to walk with anybody on staff if you want um, just to have us pray for you or counsel you in any way um, or just share some life with you over the summer we'd love to do that so I want you to know about that and, and it was announced during announcement stuff but there's um, a lot of buzz in the room still um, uh, there's class meetings coming up um, over the course of the next few weeks there's a flyer sitting on the pews please grab that take it with you um, whether or not you've participated in, in random programs or events at the house I'm gonna let you in on a secret there isn't like a it's really ironic to use this language. There isn't actually a core group <laughs> um, uh, at the house. Like it's, it's a bunch of like overlapping and, and, and sort of intersecting circles of friends and communities. Um, and I love the way that that looks. Um, we don't sort of have a one size fits all thing um, here. But, uh, but so if you've never come to anything before, like the freshman ministry thing that meets on Thursday nights or you don't know any other juniors that come to the house or whatever, um, you're still invited to this. Most people there probably won't know anybody else either. So um, you're welcome to come to that, um, but just check it out. Um, and then uh, you don't have to wait till summer to meet with anybody on staff either. Um, we got a bunch of us on staff. If you want to talk about decisions over the summer, um, you hear from this sermon or other ones, you want to talk about Jesus, um, we'd love to talk to you, okay? Um, so I want to uh, share with you something to, to get into the night. Um, every single Tuesday morning, I meet with a small group of guys from my church. Um, incidentally, that's why they're called small groups because they're small groups. And, uh, and we study things together, pray for each other, whatever. But, but pretty often we come through this. We don't do it like every week legalistically. We probably have three or four weeks that we do it every few months. And then we kind of go, you know what? We need to check in again and we do this. And we have a list of questions that we go through together and everybody has to answer every single one. And, and the, the core group or the small group that I'm involved in ranges in age from the youngest guy is probably 33, 34, the oldest is 51 and I'm 36 and, uh, <clears throat> and different jobs. Like, so I'm a college pastor. There's a guy who's an architect, a real estate guy, a guy who owns a design business, a guy who works in commercial sales, another guy who's a real estate guy, a former lawyer. So it's like, a, it's a big kind of mix of dudes and we all, answer these questions. Um, I started answering these questions with these guys after three weeks of knowing them. <laughs> um, and I want to share them with you. I want to share with you this stuff. Sometimes they vary a little bit, but here's the questions that we answer. Have you been with a woman this week in such a way that was inappropriate or could have looked to others that you were using poor judgment? Have you been completely above reproach in all of your financial dealings this week? Have you exposed yourself to any explicit material this week? That means porn, generally speaking, but whatever, anything um, explicit that you should be looking at. Have you spent daily time in prayer and in the scriptures this week? Have you fulfilled the mandate of your calling this week? We have no clue what that means. Uh, have you taken time to be with your family this week? Have you harbored contempt towards your wife? And have you just lied to me? All right, that last question, y'all. The other questions are really intense. If I left off the last one, 
That's an intense list, right? To go around and everybody answer and talk about it. You know, sometimes there's a lot of talk, there's usually some prayer, and we do this a lot. But this last one, have you just lied to me? The directness of it, the brevity of it, you know, it's the most important question in the whole list. Because for all of us, it jars us out of complacency. Because there's a degree to which, like, I've answered the questions and somebody says, did you just lie to me? And I go, crap, okay, Um, did I take the easy way out anywhere? Was there like a technicality or a loophole I was kind of jumping through here so I didn't have to answer that? Or you know what? You ask me quick, I don't think about it, and then I don't have to like say anything else. So just ask me super fast, super fast. Nope, I think I'm good. Let's move on to the next question. But there's this, have you lied to me question to make me think, to open my eyes, to kind of jar me, like I said, out of complacency and make me revisit the conversation we've just had and answer honestly about it. It's terrifying and I love it but it's, it's terrifying, okay? And I think the reason I'm giving you guys this, and it's not an example, quite frankly, we've actually started altering some of the questions. The only one that's actually on everybody's list is the last one, incidentally. We all keep that there because we all recognize the value of that kind of, um, I don't know, that kind of punch, you know, at the end. And we've been going through Matthew chapters five through seven this whole semester. We took a couple weeks off around Easter to talk about death and life. A little bit but we're coming back to this and, and as Jesus ends his sermon and he I don't know if you remember this or if you've been reading along with us which I'd encourage you to do okay matter of fact there's Bibles in the back of your pews like make sure you pull them out and you're ready to read or grab your phones or something like that okay but we're looking at Matthew chapters 5 through 7 and if you've been following along he just had this nice and neat and tidy ending in his sermon In Matthew chapter seven, he just told them, ask the father for the desires of your heart. And then he summarized all of the law and prophets in a sentence. And that's a really good ending. Like structurally speaking, if you're like like crafting sermons or speeches for somebody, you go, dude, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna summarize all the law and the prophets in a sentence and then drop the mic. Or I don't know how it works with these, okay? But, But you get the point. And you sort of have this thought reading it, I think, that you're going, Cool, man, that was great. That was amazing. That's a pretty good way to close out. But right when you think he's done, he does something that reminds me of what happens in my small group. It's kind of, he drops this bomb that feels a little bit to me like, have you lied to me? Like it it stops me in my tracks like that. Right here at the end of his sermon, after he's just summarized the law, told us to ask the father for whatever we want, he warns everybody. Not once, not twice. He warns them four times. This is how Jesus ends this magnificent sermon, the longest, complete, like sort of beginning to end sermon we have of Jesus. He ends it with four warnings. And I think he does it to jar his audience out of complacency and to jar them into decision. And he does so, I think, friends, because he knows we need it. Jesus is really smart an understatement anyway it's possible it's likely even that we will hear his words and we'll walk out those doors and do nothing with them week after week that the people sitting in his audience heard his words and he summarizes the law and the prophets and they get up and they walk away in pairs and they go isn't that neat he just summed up the law and the prophets in a sentence and so he stops and he warns them four times And heaven and hell are hanging on the decisions that they make and that we make in response to his words. And so he warns them and he warns us. Look out, he says in his first warning. 
look out at the way of the world, the moral majority, that is not the way. The narrow road and the narrow way, which is me, Jesus, you need to do something with what I said, and it's take the narrow way, the minority way of Jesus. It's a call to action. His first warning is look out. His next warning is look up. We did this over at Patton Chapel a few weeks back. He says, to, to who, who are we listening to in our church? Who are we listening to within the community of God's people for direction? Who's teaching you? Test them, examine them, look at the fruit of their lives to see their source. Look out, look up at who's teaching you. And then he comes to tonight, look in. Jesus is warning to look in at ourselves. The danger, you see, is not simply around us. In the world, on TV, certain kinds of media, professors, certain friends. The dangers are not just around us, they're also inside of us. We might ourselves be deceived and need to be woken up. And next week, we're gonna talk about his warning to look down at the foundation upon which we set our lives, right? Look out, look up, look in, look down. He's sort of helping you kind of frame his warnings in this way. He's casting our vision all over the place. Saying all of these places might be things that, that, that trip you up or are hindrances for you to respond in a life-giving way to the words I've just shared. And so he ends his sermon with a warning. And he ends that way for the same reason my small group ends with, did you just lie to me? Because we're prone to wander, to be complacent, to mail it in, to gloss over things, to sit and nod our heads, to hear his words and, and evaluate them quickly, then walk out the doors and do something else with our lives. And if we do not heed his warnings, and surely he warns us because he thinks it's important that we stop that we screech to a halt just for a second, you know? I sort of have this image sometimes that, we're, that lasts sort of four or five minutes, a class or a lecture or a sermon when you think it's over and you're watching the minute hand tick close and you're wondering if it's gonna wrap it up and you're trying to put stuff away without making a lot of noise or maybe you don't care, I don't know. But that sort of minute, it's like right at that moment that Jesus drops this huge bomb and he starts warning everybody and it's like break screech to a halt. It's like, what? You just said something really sweet. Why are you now warning us everywhere? Because he thinks we need it. And we might miss what he intends for us and what he intends for us to be sure is eternal life with him. So I wanna pray and we're gonna look at this passage of scripture. And I want you to pray with me guys, because you guys, because I, I've tried all day to make this passage of scripture say something different, but we're gonna look at it and we're gonna look at it together tonight, all right? Let's pray. Um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you, would you speak your words through me? I pray that, uh, that you would help me be faithful to your word, that my words would be yours, that you would stop my mouth from speaking any heresy or any untruth, that your word would guard me and that your spirit would hem me in, and that the words I preach or the words you've given for your people throughout all time, please. And I pray for my friends in this room and for me too, even as my spirit sits with them and I sit at the feet of your word and learn. I pray that your spirit would help us to listen, that we would hear your son warn us and our ears would perk up 
and we would stop what we're doing and we would let him interrupt the natural course of our thoughts and our feelings and the directions of our lives and the pace of things in our minds. And then we would make room to hear his warnings for if he's warning us, surely there's a reason he's warning us. And I pray that even in, in the preaching and the hearing of this word, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this warning that we're looking at tonight, this particular passage that we're looking at, I think is one of the most harrowing texts in the entire Bible. I think it will cause most of us to squirm a little bit. Um, and one of my favorite pastors, and this has sort of framed some of the way I've thought about this text, and it's surely the way I feel about this text. One of my favorite pastors <coughs> says that this verse is an arrow aimed at our hearts. That's how he summarizes this. It's an arrow aimed at our hearts. Christian, will you enter the kingdom of heaven? Will you enter the kingdom of heaven? On that day that you stand before Jesus, will you enter the kingdom of heaven? The one who decides whether you enter or not is pulling back the curtain in this text a little bit. He's pulling it back and he gives us a glimpse of what is going to happen on that day. And as we meditate on this picture tonight from these few verses, I'm hoping that the arrow of his word does pierce our heart and helps us to look in and reveal the nature of our faith, that we might respond to him and not get complacent, that we might be jolted out of our complacency and be woken up to what's inside of us, right? So let's look at this scripture together. It's from Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 through 23. And I'd encourage you, it's on the screen, but I'd encourage you also get to, to get familiar with your own Bible. If you have one, we have some, I, I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago that we'd like mug Gideons or something. Um, we don't need to do that. We actually have a bunch of free Bibles sitting out here on a table. Uh, some weeks, I don't know if it's even out there now, probably the week I talk about it, it's not out there, but uh, we usually have some Bibles and notepads because we want to encourage you to be good students which incidentally, and I've used that word three times now, um, see if I do it again, uh, is uh, uh, that's the word for disciple, student, right? So be good students, be good disciples. All right, let's go. Matthew chapter seven. Um, <clears throat> Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons? And in your name, perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Away from me, you evildoers. If you just leave that up for a while, that'd be great. Do you see the gravity of this? The weight of the warning in the midst of the people around Jesus as he does this? Among us, probably in this room, among us in our churches, among professing Christians in the world, are those who cry out, Lord, Lord, and do many things. Hear this clearly. They do many things in the name of Jesus and will never enter into the kingdom of heaven because we neither do the will of the Father or are known by the Son. This is a big warning. And that is the difference, doing the will of the Father and being known by the Son. You see, 
And and if you keep looking at this and examining it up here in your text, right? That Jesus is not talking about good people and bad people. Like some of us, I think when we imagine, we hear maybe stories, read parables, or just have our own idea of how Jesus is gonna judge things or something, if you have some concept of judgment, that bad here, good here. Probably in hindsight, I'd agree with that. But what does that look like now? And how do we know? This gets really tough because Jesus is saying here, you know where the separation's gonna come? or at least some of the separation is gonna come, right in the midst of the people who call me Lord. In the community of believers, in the community of Christians, people who affirm Jesus as the Son of God, right in the midst of that community, there's separation. He's not talking about Christians and non-Christians in the way we understand Christians. I can't tell who amongst you is saved. I don't know. But most of you in this room, most of you, not all, I'm sure, but most of you would probably say you're a Christian. That's what he means by by professing Jesus as Lord, is is that we identify these people as professing Christians. Everyone he's talking about in this text is calling him Lord. They know that he's the son of God who sits on the throne. Their doctrine is correct. And they're emphatic, emotional even. Lord, Lord, not just once, twice, right? There were no, this is kind of a common thing if you know stuff about Hebrew and Greek, which I don't know, maybe in my circles it's common. Uh, That like there's, there's no actual like exclamation marks and stuff in Hebrew and Greek, right? And so to emphasize things in writing, you'd repeat things. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. By saying it three times, it's, 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 you can see it resonating and building and filling up. It's like I put three exclamation marks at the end. Or Jesus with Mary and Martha, right? He's Martha, Martha. Repeating her, her name a second time is this endearing, intimate, like it adds something to the name. And here, Lord, Lord is an emphatic, almost emotional thing. It was to emphasize sincerity or importance to repeat a name. So Lord, Lord, and, and over and over, they're doing things in the name of God, right? Look at the text, right? Did we not prophesy in your name? In Jesus' name, drive out demons and in, the na- in your name, perform many miracles. Friends, these people were active, probably more active than many of us in this room. They did sensational things and still he casts them out. You see why it's harrowing? You see why this causes many of us to squirm a bit? Friend, you're right, listen to this, your right doctrine will not guarantee your entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It is so important that we know Jesus as the son of God. But you know that verse, right? James says it, even demons know who he is and they shudder. That doesn't mean they'll spend eternity with him. Just because you know true things doesn't mean you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. Your right doctrine will not guarantee your entrance. Neither will your passions or your emotions about Jesus secure your entrance into the kingdom of heaven. For some of us, this is great news because for some of us, we have a lot of trouble feeling what we think we're supposed to feel. And so I, we, hear, we hear this line and we go, sweet. <laughs> I, I, was, I was bankrupt there anyway. I don't know how to feel that, you know? But for many of us, and particularly youth in our culture, like anybody from the ages of, you know, teenagers all the way up to probably 30, 35-ish, we place a high value on emotions. And you might be somebody, surely at this, when Jesus is talking about the last day, there will be people that had... Jesus camp experiences, mountaintop highs. They sang a worship song that, that the bass line, because of Connor, 
was so good that it made me feel like Jesusness, you know? And that's the kind of, and I, 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 that sounds patronizing. I probably is. I was going to try to step back. I'm sorry. Um, like there's no way to, to get out of that. Um, but, but we place such a high value on emotions and some of us go, because I feel it so much, that might guarantee entrance into heaven, which is part of why maybe you panic on a day or two when you just don't feel it anymore. That's actually maybe good news. I think all of this actually is good news. But, but I, I suspect that many of us, and I know many of us will because Jesus said it's going to happen. On that day, there, are people, there will be people who say, but I got it right. And I felt a certain way about you. But that does not guarantee our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And also we cannot trust that our religious activity will gain us entry into the kingdom of heaven. I cannot, I cannot assume that all of my churchness, all of the things I do for God are going to guarantee my entrance into heaven. For there are people, friends, that have all three of those things, doctrine, sincerity, passion, emotion, whatever you want to call it, and, and, and Christian action and Christian activity who will not be admitted into the kingdom of heaven by these three verses, according to Jesus. Our doctrine, our passions, and our actions are all, I, they are so integral to how we live our lives and how we live out our faith. They really are, but they will not save us, and that is the point. That is the warning. If you think you will show up one day before God and say, look, look, I've done all this stuff in your name. Look at all the stuff that I have done. Look what I've believed. Look how hard I've fought. Look how much I've sacrificed. And that will save you? It won't. And Jesus is telling us this here because there's still time for us to decide and for us to know and for us to make decisions because that day has not yet come. And the natural question is, of course, and honestly, like, like we're drowning until we begin to ask this question because we're freaking out. What actually does like, guarantee us entrance into the kingdom of heaven? And he doesn't leave us without any information in just these three verses. What does guarantee, I'd say guarantee, not just make it probable. What guarantees your entrance into the heaven? Doing the will of the Father and being known by the Son. Read it. Only the one who does the will of my Father. And then later on at the very end when he says why he cast them out, it's because he never knew them. Doing the will of the Father and being known by the Son. And I actually think both of these things can be summarized really well by the word love. In fact, I think Jesus is just teasing out examples of what love looks like on that day. So he says, only those who do the will of the Father will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, only those who do the will of the Father will enter, I'm gonna take each of these one by one. Only those who do the will of the Father will enter into the kingdom of heaven. This must mean at least it isn't our wills that save us, okay? Like it's not ours. You and I, friend, we have to surrender our wills. For it's the one who does the will of the Father, right? Which is emphatically not ours. How many of us try to follow after Jesus with so much sincerity and earnestness without ever actually surrendering our will? without ever deciding that my life must be led by a wisdom greater than my own? Or do we just incorporate all of God's wisdom and submit it to our own will and try to play it out as we see fit? 
that what I want to do, how I want to do it, and when I want to do it, all of it must be submitted to the Father's will. Think about this, if you know the story of, right, of, of this last night kind of that Jesus had before he went to the cross, if the Christ in agony said, not my will but yours be done to the Father, how much more will we have to go through the agony of laying down our wills in order to embrace the will of the Father? Do you remember the way he taught us to pray in the very sermon that we're preaching out of? Father in heaven, holy is your name, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we lay down our will and we do his. That's what he says. If you do this, if you do the will of the Father, that's the person that gets entry into the kingdom of heaven. And we don't have to wonder what the will of the Father is. That might sound really, I don't know, ethereal or enigmatic or pie in the sky or something, I don't know, vague. What is the will of the Father? It's perfectly, clearly communicated to us through the Son. Perfectly. We must only believe in him. And it's a different sermon, of course, but you, you, you must know that belief and faith, biblically, it's not intellectual knowledge. I just got done saying that, that, that the doctrine doesn't save you, okay? Belief and faith are a believing into, a, a believing on, a stepping on, a putting my weight on, you know? It's, it's like, I mean, you can imagine somebody, I don't know, rappelling or doing something like this on a cliff. Like, it, it's the difference between standing and pointing at the rope saying, I believe it'll hold me, but never doing it. And actually with my life, putting my trust in it, right? That, that's, that's the biblical notion of belief. I'm not trying to do some weird like Jesus juke on you. That's what they would have heard in have faith in him or believe in him. Stake your life on it. That's what belief means, right? The will of the father is that you believe the son. That's it. You'll notice, of course, by these verses, right, that trusting Jesus, putting our weight in Jesus, does not necessarily mean prophesying or casting out demons or performing miracles. Those things might happen, surely, but if you've been paying attention to what Jesus had been saying on the Sermon on the Mount, you would see the things that believing in him looks like, right? Believing in him, trusting him, he did not command them, his listeners, to command us to perform miracles, he commands us to release our unrighteous anger. Let it go. To let go of your lusts. To mean what you say. To love your enemies and your friends, but also your enemies. To keep your pious activities like prayer and probably private Bible study and journaling and tithing and fasting, keep that stuff quiet unto yourself because it doesn't make anybody else glorify God. It just, may, it just magnifies everybody else's shame. Seek him first and let go of your anxiety. Ask the Father for whatever you want. These are the things that Jesus commands us. What does it mean to believe him? Just in the text that we've studied, it means going after those things, running after those things because you believe Jesus' way is better than your own. And if you do that, if you're doing that, take heart because you're doing the will of the Father. If you're looking upon the Son and believing him, take heart. This is the will of the Father, right? But you cannot gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven if you have not laid down your will and embraced the will of the Father. You cannot gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven unless you've laid down your will and you've believed in the Son. 
And Jesus gives us a second clue in his warning up here, right? He says to those he casts out, I never knew you. Now, first of all, I mentioned this already, right? You can't worry too much about whether or not you feel like you know Jesus. You just can't, friends. Remember, emotions don't secure your entrance into the kingdom anyway. So stop putting so much weight on your emotions in this regard. The question isn't what you feel. It's a question of truth. Does Jesus know you? Either he does or he doesn't, regardless of how you feel. Does Jesus know you? He's God, okay, so he knows about you. Don't confuse those two things, right? <laughs> like he knows you in that sense. More than you know yourself, he knows about you. But Jesus doesn't say, I never knew about you. He says, I never knew you. Some of you in this room um, know me. Almost all of you know something about me, at least by this point, even if it's your first night here, right? I mentioned I'm 36. I'm married to a woman named Anna, whom I love more than anybody in this world. I'm the father to Jackson and Blythe, B-L-Y-T-H-E. People get it wrong, don't. It means happy. It's my wife's middle name. It's beautiful. And my youngest daughter is Audrey. And though they are my children, I know that they are first God's children. I know that. And I want them to know him. That is my chief end with them, is to grow them, to be mature men and women, and help them to know God. And I want to be known and loved by God and also by you. You can know that about me. I hate being the center of attention and I've never wanted to lead anything, but I'm trying to learn to embrace it. I never wanna retire. I wanna be known for love and humility. I really love working with college students a lot. Like I cherish that so many of you in this room and people that aren't in this room share your lives with me. I want to bring you with me and I want you to bring me with you into a deeper knowledge and love of Jesus. I'm really thankful for G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis. Movie theaters are one of my favorite places in the whole world. And I think whiskey and coffee are two of the most holy things on the planet, okay? <laughs> you know some things about me right now. These are all very true things and some of them even speak to really deep things about me, truly. You know some things about me, but do you know me? For those of you that I don't know well, that you, we don't actually know each other, you don't know me just from me sharing info. You can know all sorts of things about me. I don't know if you've learned this, but you know some of us actually avoid vulnerability by telling people everything and we're never vulnerable. I figured that out super early. It was a great safety mechanism that I could tell you every single thing about my life and not give a rat's ass what you think. And I found that was the greatest way for me to protect myself from you. You can know tons of stuff about me and never know me. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference between those two things? How would I go about letting you know me? If you don't know me, how would I go about it? It's, it's not complicated. Sorry, it's very complicated. It's a simple idea though. It's hard to do. How would I go about letting you know me? There's all sorts of ways to do it. Just a human to human interaction, right? I'd let my guard down with you, let you in my life, give you some time, share with you my desires and my thoughts, be with you. In a word, it's love. That's what it is. If I'm vulnerable for you, right? If I lay down my life in order to affirm the dignity of who you are and share life with you and draw close to you, if I let my life be for you for a little while, is that not love? How would I let you know me? By loving you. That's how I'd let you know me. That's how we let anybody know any of, uh, of who we are, by loving them. And it's the same with God. 
It was the same with God before his incarnation. And of course, now it actually is easier for us to understand because we know that God actually is human. So when I say human to human interaction, it's real forever. That's another sermon too. There's a great difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. And Jesus is talking about the latter. Does he know you? He's speaking about something deeply relational and his audience friends, I think, would know this, right? He's speaking, <coughs> excuse me, to a Jewish people for whom the idea of knowing another person is tied up in deep intimacy, so much so that to know another sometimes in the Hebrew culture meant sex or marriage. They knew one another, had that connotation. That's what knowing you that's the depth of intimacy that this stuff came about. Knowing in this way is deeply interpersonal. Does God know you intimately? Will you put up that next verse for me, buddy? The Apostle Paul said, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. How is it that we let God know us? Same way I'd let you know me, right? I open myself up to you. Spend time with you, share my life with you. I love you and you come to know me. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. If you wonder whether or not Jesus knows you, I've asked the question at least 10 times, does he know you? He's told you what it means to be known by him. It simply means to love him. And don't you see that laying down our wills for his is an act of love and trust? Isn't that what it looks like often when we love each other? Even as something as silly as driving side by side in a car and I wanna play this music and you wanna play that and I decide to lay down my will for you, it's an act of love. We're deciding where to eat and I start meditating on what you might wanna eat. And I decide to lay down my preference, my will for yours. I take the power of my will and I decide to use it for you for a minute. That, that's love. It's always and ever about love with God. It, the whole freaking creation from beginning to end is love. It is the great miracle and, and great truth upon which everything is founded, right? God himself is love, we're told. You could translate the Bible as long as you kept it personal and incorporated in the triune God. In the beginning was love. And so what do we expect God is wanting in our lives? Miracles? Prophecy? Doctrine? Strong emotions? You really think that's what he wants more than anything else? Okay, what did you do? Did you prophesy? How many miracles did you do? Talk to me about your doctrine. We got a few tests for you. Get your Scantron out. I mean, what, what do we think is going to happen on that day, really? He, no, he give, actually, matter of fact, all those things he gives us. It's his prophecy that he puts in the mouth of prophets. It's his power that does miracles. He is the one that gives us correct doctrine. No Christian, no person went into a closet and meditated by themselves enough to figure out all these things about God. We only know things about God because he's revealed himself to us. That's it. What is it that he wants from you? All we really have to offer in this world, friends, is our love. That's it. You have your will your choice. Who are you going to give it to and who you're going to give it for? Have you done the will of the Father? It's just another way of asking, do you love me? Do, you, do I know you? It's just another way of asking, do you love me? 
You may have heard, if you've ever been to a wedding probably, in one of the most magnificent poems in the history of the world. Listen to this language. And for a second, try to believe that it's true. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So many of us think that we will stand before God one day and display our record and be granted entrance into the kingdom because we speak in the tongues of angels, because we understand mysteries, because we've moved mountains or something, because we've sacrificed and given so much for you, God. But that's not the way. The way is only and ever love, freely given. This is the arrow which pierces our heart most deeply his self-sacrificing love on our behalf. Will we receive it? Will we let him in? My heart, friends, is so heavy and it's been heavy all day because honestly, some of us in this very room won't. We hear all of Jesus's words and teachings and we strive and we toil and we work and we sweat day after day after day for him without ever really knowing him or being known by him. We will not lay down this idea that God's love must be earned. And I think it grieves the Lord so much that here, surrounded by people he loves, he warns them, hoping to wake them from their slumber. But for all who've received him, okay, everybody who does look upon the Son and believe him, I think we're reminded even in this warning, and this is grace, that it is then, just as it is now, free. It is then, just as it is now, free. And in that, our hearts can rest and be at peace, except for one thing, that there is still time for anyone who has not yet believed him. And so the arrow's got to pierce our hearts. For some, that we would awaken to love Jesus and be known by him. Stop demanding that we, we, we get it right and figure it out and know everything. We're not those people and we're not those people and I'm finally doing it right and I'm gonna stand on my own account. Forget, thank you, Jesus, that's really great. I know you forgive me, I can't forgive myself. Thank you, Jesus, for all the work that you've done. It's so close to making me right. I'm just gonna finish it up a little bit for you. And I'm gonna stand before God and I'm, I'm, I'm anxious about it, but I work so much harder than my roommate or my ex or whoever else, my family, that surely he's gonna let me in and we can't let that go. And the way the world affirms that kind of message, right? You earn trust, you earn love, you earn respect. That's the, that's not, that's the wide road. That's not the narrow one. And many of us in this room will not give that up and awaken to love Jesus and be known by him. And for the rest, it pierces our heart, I think. And God wants to awaken us so that we would actually embody him for the rest of you and for each other. That we, the church, would be the fullness of him who, who fills all in all. That's what he's doing in this warning. There's still time 
For those of you in Christ who believe in him, know that on that day, it's the same as it is now, free. And for those of you that don't know him, know this, only those who do the will of the Father and are known by Jesus are granted entrance. That's it. And both of those are given to you freely in Christ. There's nothing you can do to gain it. There's nothing you can do to lose it before that time. Just receive it. It's a big, big warning, and I want to make it all pretty, but this is how Jesus lands it. I want to encourage you to go back through the sermon that he preached before these warnings. It'll take you less than 12, 15 minutes tops. I know that you all have a lot of reading that you're already not doing, okay? But this is super, it's not long. Five, six, and seven, it's, it's three chapters. It's not even, I'm not even asking you to read the very end. Read what's coming and I want you to ask the question, why did Jesus warn me? Is it possible that I'm not listening and not responding well to what he's saying? What is it that I might be missing? I wanna encourage you to do that, that we might be shaken a little bit. It's a little bit like my friends in this small group saying, have you just lied to me? I'm not actually saying have you guys lied to God, okay? Like I'm not, asking, I'm not saying that, I'm saying, but let his warnings jolt us a little bit out of slumber and complacency. All right, tonight, Every single night, actually, in the back, there's a number of student leaders who'd love to pray with you every single Tuesday. And you can just get up in the middle of a song or, or afterwards, or we can go find someplace to sit and pray or something like that. It's totally fine. We want, to, want you to know that um, every Tuesday. And I also want you to know, I said this earlier, that if you ever want to meet with a member of our staff, talk about what it means to know God or be known by God, or you just, we, I'd love to know you. So um, there's a bunch of us on staff. We'd love to meet with you. Come find me or something like that, all right? Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, in response to hearing your warning, I'm so tempted to soften the blow um, and say it's really not that big of a deal warning-wise or something, but it, it, you must have said it because you're, you don't want anybody to perish and you don't want anybody on that last day to not know you and be known by you. I pray for my friends in this room, for all of us in this room, for any part of me too, Father, that thinks that I must earn your affection or love or trust, that keeps beating, we keep beating ourselves up for not doing enough, for getting it right. May we be reminded that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that all you're going to think about on that day, for everybody who is in you, is whether we've believed you and whether you know us. I want to pray that your spirit would descend on this room in a powerful way, helping my friends know that you know them. But I also know that you've given us this ability to resist you, to keep you out. May it not be tonight. May we let you in, be vulnerable with you. May we share it with a friend. May we talk, confess, pray. While there's still time, may we receive the warning from Jesus to love him and be known by him. Would you help us even now, help our unbelief, help our doubt, help our poor voices and our weak bodies and all these other things, our unbelieving minds. Would you help us to praise you in desperation and declaration both? I thank you for your word even the hard stuff. 
And I thank you for my friends being with me tonight as we talk through it together. Please be honored and glorified, Father, um, by our night and by, by who we are in your son. And receive our praise now in Jesus' name.